Welcome back to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. My name is Jeremy, and I'm joined, as always, with the Reverend, the Doctor. <laughs> do, do, are, there, are there other titles? I should, the Director of the Center for Theology and Public Life. The, which which other ones would you like? Um, most recent president, what do we, do you get a special title forever? Uh, I just say past president now. Past president of the American Academy of Religion and past president of the Society of Christian Ethics. I think you're having fun with this new uh, equipment. Jeremy. I'm having way too much fun with my new microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful Sure SM7 Broadcaster. So, welcome back to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. We are a production of Mercy University's Center for Theology and Public Life, which is housed in Atlanta, Georgia, in the McAfee School of Theology. Just came from a meeting with the dean of the McAfee School of Theology, and things seem really exciting over there. And they're excited about this. They're excited about what the center's up to. They're excited about the podcast. That support's nice. That's great. It is. I'm very grateful. Recently, you were somewhere in Texas. It sounds like Lubbock, and I still don't know where it is or exactly how to say it. Lubbock. 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 <laughs> I thought it was, I was thinking it was French. I kept trying to say Leblanc. <laughs> Leblanc. So Lubbock, Lubbock, Texas, at the uh, Fred Gray <laughs> Lectureship on Human Dignity and Civil Rights. Human and Civil Rights. Human and Civil Rights on sort of your, <laughs> we could call it the apology tour. <laughs> let's not. Uh, let's, let's call it um, uh, dealing seriously with race tour or something. On the dealing seriously with race tour. Um, and it seems to be a piece of the, the trajectory of where we're going, where you're going. And so we recently, in getting ready for new things, I saw an updated version of your CV, which included all, is it 24 published books? I'm looking at it. it he is. doesn't know how many books he's written, folks. That's a sign. Uh, it is 23, 24 this fall, and two more coming out in the next, <laughs> in the next uh, year to year and a half. Yeah. And you still have time to do all of these other things. Um, so I went and pulled some of these um, early books. Sometime we should do a discussion about your early books because some of them are really fun. I'd be very happy to do that. I, I when you know whenever you update your CV, it does make you think about the whole journey. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I I mean we need to talk about Santa and Jesus. Oh stop! <laughs> anyway, stop right now. <laughs> your second book, 1996, Preparing for Ministry: An Evangelical Approach. Book number 13 in 2012, A New Evangelical Manifesto. 22nd book in 2017, Still Christian, Following Jesus Out of American Evangelicalism. And then your AAR address was In the Ruins of White Evangelicalism. And you, it's sort of this relationship, you can watch it, yeah. um, kind of maybe un bloom and unravel of your, your career and the evangelical experience and you survived you're one of the the veterans of the fundamentalist takeover and all of those wars that took place in the churches and the academy but you could retitle these books sort of like um evangelical ministry let's go get it 
Um, <laughs> I hear that accent. New Evangelical. <laughs> new ev- Well, that's what young uh, Gushy sounded like to the New Yorkers. Okay. Um, new Evangelical Manifesto. Like, okay, guys, it's may- maybe we can fix it. It's not really working, but maybe we can fix it. There, yeah. and then following Jesus out of evangelicalism, like, well, later. And then your AAR address is like turning around to see the city burning in the ruins of white evangelicalism. So before we go um, any farther, quick, on paper, what is an evangelical? Like, what is the most basic actual definition? And then I'll let you tell me what you actually think. But what what should a textbook say evangelicalism is? Well... If you look behind you in this office, we have some of the books that attempt to do that definition. Um, it's actually far more complicated than one would think it is. Mm-hmm. So um, evangelical, that word, at one level, can be defined theologically. And so you you think of types of Protestants, say— or yeah, I would go more broadly, types of Christians. Here's your Eastern Orthodox. Here's your Roman Catholic. Here's your Protestants. Okay, types of Protestants. Here's your liberal Protestants. Here's your conservative Protestants. Bang, evangelicals are in the conservative Protestants category. Okay, okay so that's one way to do it. Uh, another way is to say, oh, evangelicals are people who believe Orthodox Christian theology. And so then you would attempt to define some core set of beliefs. The fundamentals. Right, and then you say, if you can say yes to these things, like Jesus is the only way to salvation and the Bible is the sole source of authority. I mean, everybody tries different lists mm-hmm. here, right? If you can subscribe to all or most of those, that makes you an evangelical. Some people define evangelicalism uh, partly that way and also by experience. So evangelical is somebody who says they have a personal relationship with Jesus mm-hmm. Christ or is born again. That language isn't as popular right. as it used to be. But as you add that to your uh, theological criteria, and the most, um, you might say, sophisticated way to define evangelicalism is to is to tell a historical tale that, um, and you can do this critically or uncritically, in a sense, but the uncritical historical tale is um, that evangelicals are theologically orthodox Protestants traceable at least to the Reformation and having, they're the, the, the scarlet thread of people who have retained true biblical faith while other people have strayed off into liberal error or whatever. Right? Are, are all evangelicals fundamentalists? We no. think about the five fundamentals and no. No, but that itself is an interesting story. I, I I realize I really tend to think in historical terms very very much, and so in the U.S. setting in particular, the there was a split in the 1910s and 20s between what at the time were called fundamentalists and modernists, or fundamentalists and liberals, mm-hmm. and in general, the fundamentalists were opposed to modern biblical criticism and modern science. And they were, and they were, they were running away from the Enlightenment's approach. Yeah, to the and world. concerned about any revision of theological beliefs, like um, you know, versions of Christianity where Jesus couldn't have performed miracles because miracles are not possible. Right. Um, Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead because that would be a miracle. 
or um, there couldn't be a virgin birth, uh, there couldn't be a physical re- resurrection, and um, couldn't be a six-day creation or whatever. And, and partly it, it got tangled up in ideas about science, old earth, young earth, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the fundamentalists were just against all of that. And they wanted to adhere to the traditional theological and biblical beliefs. And, uh, but in the 1940s, a group of fundamentalists decided that fundamentalism itself needed reform, that it had become uh, too uh, anti-science, anti-modern, anti-engagement with culture, um, too, uh, too defined by what it was against, too hunkered down and, and kind of blinkered like... We okay. will not listen to them. We will not pay attention to them. We will retreat into our own little subculture. And so they, they, they wanted reform in fundamentalism, but they also wanted a rebranding of fundamentalism so that uh, it could be a fresh start. Okay. And the rebranding was to call the movement evangelical or neo-evangelical, sometimes evangelical. I, I was taught evangelical. Anyway. Um, long E, short E. Okay. Um, so, so this happened during the World War II period and was led by people like Carl Henry and uh, Harold John Ockingay and E.J. Cardinal and people nobody's ever heard of now. And, and so they decided they also needed to create institutions that could pull together coalitions of theologically conservative and fundamentalist Protestants and help them to think of themselves as part of a broader evangelical world. And these guys were institution builders, and they were good at it. Um, the National Association of Evangelicals, Christianity Day magazine, Fuller Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. um, and a host of other uh, efforts were uh, created, and they still exist, to, uh, to create a kind of a big tent evangelicalism. Um, so this world, um, self-consciously set itself apart from mainline liberal Protestantism, as well as from Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, um, was known for its theological conservatism, but wanted to be politically engaged in a thoughtful way. But I would say, I would say that you have that. And you have that world and the institutions that came out of it. Um, but now uh, an interesting, well, there's an interesting body of scholarship that is raising all kinds of interesting questions about this world. The whiteness of it. Mm-hmm. This was a male, a white and male project. And the Calvinism of it. A lot of this was led by, by uh, theologically Calvinist or Reformed folks. Um, and they... They batted away a great dissertation by one of our graduates at Mercer and now Union Seminary, Isaac Sharp, just finished. They batted away challenges of all types. Over the, they have done so over the seventy-year modern history of evangelicalism, um, the social justice challenge, the challenge to really be to take seriously um, uh, racial integration and racial uh, the whole history of race, um, feminist challenge. Uh, the challenge from uh, like Pentecostalism and Arminianism. Um, even uh, Isaac has a great chapter on uh, what to make of Bart, Karl Bart. Mm. And in general, they decided he was not orthodox enough. 
Um, and, and then eventually now, uh, the, uh, challenge from political non-conservatives like myself, and then now the challenge on, from, on the LGBT front. And so, uh, there's some interesting deconstruction happening. An earlier project of deconstruction was by D.G. Hart, who said this whole concept of evangelicalism is essentially a myth. What you have is a movement of people who found it to be in their interest to say there's this thing called evangelicalism. And, um, but what there is is actually Whoa. independent Christian groups of various types and uh, I would say um, that these groups are actually better off functioning ecclesiologically. They're better off functioning from within their own polity. So let the Methodists be the Methodists and let the Pentecostals be themselves and let the, uh, let the Wesleyans be themselves, um, let the Calvinists be themselves, let the Quakers be themselves. And um, so anyway, I didn't know all of this when I decided to claim the evangelical label in about 1990 to 93. Becoming every liberal's favorite evangelical. I, I became an evangelical uh, sitting at the feet of Ron Sider uh, of uh, Evangelicals for Social Action and, and Eastern Seminary in Philadelphia. I was on his staff, and he, he at the time, resolved a theological and identity question for me. And that was, what are you, Geshe? Well, I wasn't Catholic anymore. I was raised Catholic. Um, and I wasn't so sure about the Southern Baptists. I knew I'd, I couldn't fully identify there anymore. And I had been to Union Seminary in New York and found it a little too liberal for me. And I wasn't really a liberal Protestant. What was I? I guess what I was, was a progressive evangelical theologically pretty orthodox, and I still am in a lot of ways, surprised, but I am. Uh, like I believe in the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus, so there mm -hmm. you go. Um, so theologically pretty orthodox, politically pretty, pretty progressive. And so I uh, was not first generation of that group. The first generation of that group well, it goes all the way back to the 19th century, but in modern times, it was people like Tony Campolo and Jim Wallace and Ron Sider, as well as a lot of Latino and African-American and other kind of evangelicals. Um, and so you might say that my early use of the term evangelical was uncritical. I was in the community. I wasn't a liberal Protestant. I wasn't a Catholic. I wasn't Eastern Orthodox. Right. I was a progressive evangelical. I also wasn't a Christian right evangelical. I wasn't a Jerry Falwell evangelical. Mm -hmm. Moral majority. I wasn't a moral majority evangelical. Game. I was a Jim Wallace, Tony Campolo, Ron Sider evangelical. Well, the evangelicals of well, the evangelicals that I think of when I use the term um, are the leftovers of the moral majority, and I don't because so I'm I'm born 1990. Gasps. Mm -hmm. Um. And so it's the evangelical world for me is fundamentalist takeover of the SBC um, and the leftovers of Ronald Reagan and the moral majority movement as it, that starts to decline in the two, like through up to the 2000s. It's not really a thing anymore. Um, but that's, that's what the word kind of means to me. And they've never known what to do with folks like Campolo. 
Right. That well, group they, yeah. of evangelicals always scared of them. They've known that they were the enemy. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they were sure that that um, Christian public theology needed to be conservative. But there's a whole story behind how that happened. But essentially, in the couple of dissertations that I have supervised recently, the role of white, a kind of whiteness, an unexamined whiteness and, and an unexamined kind of middle America values, um, it must not be overlooked. So... So uh, the, the fact that you would mainly think when you hear that word, you'd mainly think of moral majority leftovers is, is a sad casualty of, of the fact that in the U.S. setting, the political strategy of, of the political preachers like Falwell mm-hmm. and Pat Robertson marrying the Republican Party and, and now also holding it at gunpoint, basically, um, we will support you if you give us what we want. Right. And so we will give you 81% of our voters if you give us conservative Supreme Court justices and anti-abortion rhetoric. And Well, that was, that was also the, the strategy for the takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention. It was political, and it was about how you get people on boards. Um, yeah. In my, fact, they were some of the same people. Yeah, my alma mater is Samford University, who is not— so the Southern Baptists don't own any uh, undergraduate programs except for the ones— that have been built around their seminaries. Right. That I don't quite understand how those function. Um, but Mainly as Bible colleges, basically. Yeah, so my, my school was a part of, it was connected to the Alabama Baptist Association, and they had seats on the board in exchange for a certain amount of money. And I understand they're like, um, I had a conversation yesterday about Shorter University. Uh, for 4%, the exchanges, we pay 4% of your budget and we get half the seats on your board is their relationship with Georgia um, Baptist Association. Samford had the same with the Alabama Baptists, and they just ended that, uh, I think, in 2016. President, um, the president of Samford University. Westmoreland? Hey, yes, I was going to edit it in later, but you've remembered. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, Andy Westmoreland gives this speech and then turns directly to the Alabama Baptists and says, we don't need your money and we don't want your influence. And Yeah, and that's... I've been looking at that's cascading. This is what people are doing more and more joining this club of even not just post broad connection, but post even local connection. I don't even want the Alabama Baptists involved in, well, I mean, most people don't want the Alabama anything involved in their anything. But <laughs> now, Jeremy, <laughs> love your heritage, Jeremy. <laughs> Own where you come from, my Roll friend. Tide. Um, so, yeah, there's there's this continued fall of the political attempts of what I understand of the evangelicals. Their strategy is now somewhat unraveling. The big six seminaries are still doing fine. There's plenty of momentum inside the system itself, but their tentacles are all sort of withering. I would I would also say don't um, over identify the Southern Baptist story and the broader evangelical story. They right. are. There's a Venn diagram overlap, but they're not exactly the same story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, my vision of the story is so small. Yeah, and everybody, it's like the elephant. Everybody has their part of the elephant. Exactly. I think mine's the butt. <laughs> um, so like my own relationship to evangelicalism was, first it was a welcome identity home. And having had a Southern Baptist conversion experience, of course, Southern Baptists didn't need to be evangelicals. They That wasn't. 
They were just Southern Baptists. They were just Southern Baptists, right? And eventually, part of the conservative takeover was a choice to go ahead and uh, identify Southern Baptists as evangelicals, but as conservative evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And then for me, when I saw, especially as my career developed, and I saw that the things that I believed were appropriate expressions of Christian moral and social values were constantly being um, challenged by my conservative evangelical co-religionists, I, I became a kind of a reformer. I, I, I dug in on the progressive side and said, hey, listen, following Jesus doesn't fit well with torture mm-hmm. after 2001. Or following Jesus ought to lead to concern about climate, if that's what the scientists are telling us we have a problem. Or following Jesus should lead to some compassion towards immigrants. Or uh, following Jesus is about more than banning abortion. And so broader agenda, different agenda. And I was part of efforts to broaden that agenda and so on. Um, but I would say after 2008, especially, um, as, our, as our country polarized all the more, as um, conservative white evangelicals were very anti-Obama, um, very anything, anti-anything that Obama was for, like, mm-hmm. for example, health care reform, um, it began to seem like the, the evangelical label was a, was not working as well for me anymore. So like a lot of people, I it was not easy for me to walk away from an identity that had served me well and had mattered a lot to me for 25 years. Um, when I wrote the LGBT inclusion book called Changing Our Mind. And Becoming I got, Every Evangelical's Least I, Favorite Liberal. Yeah, I got such ferocious pushback for that. Um, that almost entirely pushed me out the door, but then I think the 81% embrace of Donald Trump did me in. And so I would say this new book that I'm working on this fall is called right now For the Post-Evangelicals, Where Do We Go From Here? And Because I'm looking for a new, I want a rewrite of New Evangelical Manifesto. Because all of the, there are now good, strong, large, what do they call themselves? Exvangelicals, those who have left the right. evangelical group. There's lots of space for them, and those are depressing spaces to be in. They're not. They're only about a, a site. Um, go back to my. I read a Lacan book, and it makes me feel too smart. Mm-hmm. Um, they are obsessed with what they've left, yeah. and they're very negative spaces, and they want to dogpile and they want to complain. And you, when you're wounded, you need a place to to do these things, but. We need to be for something as well. I need a new post-evangelical manifesto. That's basically what this is going to be. Um, I, I would say that um, changing our mind was the decisive break. I didn't know it at the time. I thought I was just contributing to the conversation, but it ended up being the decisive break with evangelicalism. And then the bewildering barrage of attacks and broken friendships and broken invitations mm-hmm. and broken contracts and so on it it really brought me up short it took me that happened from the fall of 2014 into 2016 and then the trump election and the evangelical support i would say i found myself angry and disoriented for maybe a year and a half or two years but and it was hard for me not not to just sound angry all the time in my in my 
blogging and in my uh, anytime I mentioned evangelicalism, but I'm past that. And it helps that I'm mid-50s, not 30. I think the what is going under the label ex-evangelical right now, a lot of it is younger folks who are who are still processing stuff, some of which was frankly absurd that they yes. dealt with in their Christian schools or in their families or in their churches. Yeah, I'm working through those wounds. Right. And so they're angry and they're and they're contemptuous and scornful. Um but where exactly to go from here? There's not that many helpful voices. Mm-hmm. I think there are some people who were groping, like Rachel Held Evans was groping towards the future, right? And Jonathan Merritt and other younger voices are attempting to say. But I think coming in as a more seasoned um, person who's, I think I'm past the anger and more more ready to say, all right, so where do we do next? Mm-hmm. You know, where, do we, where do we go from here? And so the book um, is going to, hopefully take me into some constructive theology and proposals for for church life uh, on a wide range of things that I've not really written about before. So, or at least not beyond little sermons or opinion pieces. And so, I, for example, I plan a serious chapter on how do we relate to Scripture. Uh, uh, also, um, what is our theology of the church going to look like? And what is our practice of church life? What are our options now? Uh, do we go to Rome? Do we go to the, to the Anglican church? Do we go uh, to some, you know, do we just say we don't go to church anymore? Or do, what about house churches? What about small Bible studies? I have a church you can go to. <laughs> so, if you're looking for a church. There you go, Jeremy. Good job, man. <laughs> so, so kind of what do we do about church? What do we do about tradition? How do we make sense of our of of um, our engagement in the public square now? If we're not going to do Christian right stuff, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Um, so some of that stuff I've written about before, but I I envision kind of starting off by saying, here's what I'm leaving behind, just to put the stake in the ground. You know, like here it is, and here's why I'm leaving it behind. So hey, if you all if you agree that you're ready to leave that behind too, or you've left it behind, great, we're on the same page. Now what do we do? Right. And so that's what I want to do in this book. There's so many, from my perspective, that are throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And as a soon-to-be parent, I've learned that you should never throw babies. Don't Um, throw babies. So That's right. So many people are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm curious what it it is. You've said some of the things that are why you're leaving. What do you want to take with you? That's a great question, and that needs to inform the book. Um, Passion for personal relationship with Jesus, uh, commitment to the local church of some type, uh, serious engagement with Scripture, um, serious moral commitment, desire to make a positive difference in the world in the name of Jesus. Um, one One of the classic definitions of evangelicalism has the word activist in it, that evangelicals are activists. They they're not satisfied with the world as it is. They're trying to do something all the mm-hmm. time. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. They, yeah, they they want to be better themselves, and they also want to make the world a better place, either through evangelism or through going to Uganda and serving the church there or feeding the hungry or whatever. So I have in mind also a certain kind of tepid liberal Christianity that doesn't attract me, like 
I've spoken in many churches where I'll say, okay, let's open the Bible and study this passage. And they'll say, hold on, we'll have to figure out where those Bibles are. We, we haven't used mm-hmm. them in a while. Um, where preaching is 12 minutes of not much, right? Um, I don't know. I think, I I know I, that there's no future there, not as far as I'm concerned. So, um, This has been my struggle the last... People like me um, are having this experience of I can't I can't hold all of these things. I can't hold water for these people or this group anymore. But it feels like they're the ones that have Jesus. Or at least they're serious about Jesus. Right. Because right? I, I, I happen to be in love with Jesus. I can't get away from the Sermon on the Mount. I can't not... I can't not preach the Bible. This is what this is what I do. This is what the Spirit has placed in me. This is why I do what I do and who I am. I can't leave that behind. I I fear that theology as theology, just kind of serious thinking about salvation, scripture, um, church you know, Jesus, Holy Spirit, whatever, is just eroding. Mm -hmm. And on the left, you go to a left-leaning church, you just get kind of some liberal politics that you could have picked up in the newspaper. Uh, And if you go to a conservative church, you just get conservative politics that you could have picked up on Fox. Where's some integral, serious biblical theology? I, I want that. Right. And so, actually, I think this book may end up sounding more conservative theologically than people expect to hear from me because, you know, because everything's about the LGBT issue or something, right? And you're supposed to pick teams. Right. And there's only two teams. Right. And so, anytime, if you disagree, (laughs) I'm getting loud, if you disagree on one thing, they think you've switched teams. Like, you've left Jesus behind, too. It's like... um. Um, it what comes to my mind is uh, John Piper. Piper, okay. Tweeted uh, when um, Rob Bell's book Love Wins came out, uh, which wasn't saying anything that C.S. Lewis hasn't said. Right. Uh, for those who haven't read it and have opinions about it, um, sent this tweet: "Farewell, Rob Bell. Yeah. You've changed your mind on a thing on language about a thing. Is all he really changed? Language about a thing, and so you're out." And that that's how everyone acts. If you are not entirely in line, if you're not in lockstep with group A or group B, then you must belong to the other and there's no room for nuance or conversation. Yeah. That's a scary world. It is. It's it's our tribalism that and there are two tribes. It's primal and it's been reactivated. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And and you know, for real people who are trying to figure out it's Sunday morning. What do I do about church? I, I want a relationship with Jesus, and I used to go to church. I can't go to X, you know, non-denom evangelical church over there because they're going to feel like they have to bash gay people and and offer some kind of thinly veiled pro-Trump message, and that's that's what they do or whatever. I can't do that, though. I do like that pretty spirited music that they offer mm-hmm. and. And every so often, there's a really rich sermon about something. And okay, so I can't do that. So now maybe I go to this little uh, mainline church over here, and 
but they're they're offering me liberal pieties, and I want more scripture. I'm hungry for some scripture. I'm not getting enough scripture, and I'm not hearing Jesus mentioned a lot. Yeah, the, and, the answers the churches are giving are how to vote, and yeah, that can't that can't be it. That I can't, can't leave yeah. uh, my because I I was an angry reformed fundamentalist. That is my childhood faith. Mm. And it's now a much more nuanced, um, impassioned Jesus um, experience. And the answer for me to leave the... The answer for me leaving cannot be just to vote Democrat. Right. That cannot be the answer. Right. You know that it can't just be to vote Republican either. You need more than that, right? Um, so... I'll boldly ask listeners to pray for me that that as I go into the sabbatical tunnel in which I am thinking in fresh ways and hopefully non-tribal ways and non-angry ways about where we go from here, that I will actually be granted some insights that can help a lot of people like you and like like we're talking about, right? Um, when I, I just had this amazing feeling, maybe I'll I'll close with this story. When I was at the AAR meeting of my presidency in November of 2018, for a talk entitled In the Ruins of White Evangelicalism, it seemed like there were an awful lot of people like you, Jeremy, in the room. Um, here's, so you know, shaking hands after. Yes, I, I went to Wheaton College in Fuller, and now I'm a pastor somewhere, or I went to Wheaton and Gordon Conwell, and now I'm teaching at such and such a, a place. I'm deeply dissatisfied with what has become of evangelicalism, but I'm not an Episcopalian. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be Catholic. I don't want to stop going to church. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sense a hunger for something other, something different, something better. Well, you know, the first place that I really dealt with this was after I wrote the LGBT inclusion book, Changing Our Mind. And I met online or in person an awful lot of deeply pious LGBT young people who said, well, I guess I can't go to churches anymore that diminish my dignity, but I don't know where else to go. I don't want to sing old dusty hymns from, Mm -hmm. from 1720. I want to sing, you know... The, the praise courses of the church that I came from, you know, and I, I want serious Bible preaching. I just don't want serious Bible preaching that bashes me and makes me, makes me uh, their scapegoat, you know? And so, um, so there are lots of people looking for new models of church and new ways to think theologically. Um, and I hope to do something of that in the book. In a sense, it'll close out a in one sense, it closes out a trilogy that goes from changing our mind to still Christian to this book. But as you've pointed out, in one sense, it closes out a whole trajectory that starts with preparing for Christian ministry and evangelical approach. I think I, don't know, I must have eight books in this list that have evangelical in the title. Mm-hmm. I've been on that journey, too. And evangelicals are not evil. Uh, There's just things that have gone wrong. And... Um, uh, maybe as a senior statesman, uh, I can offer some help for some people. But I, I sure sensed in the room that night a lot of people who were saying, "We're interested in what you have to say next," because because uh, on this, on what do we what do we do now? 
because we can't go back, but we don't know how to move forward. Maybe there's a movement brewing. Maybe there is. I've seen some institutional efforts and expressions of it. Emergent Church member was kind yeah. of part of that. Um, other kinds of church networks. Um, there are Pied Pipers of this movement. I think Brian McLaren has been out there for a while being this voice or one of these voices. Um, there are others, but I still think there's space um, f- to make a contribution. There. So that's what I'll be doing next. Very good. Thank you, David. Thanks, Jeremy.